for listening to the Red Letter Business Podcast presented by Christian Businessmen's Connection, Oklahoma. Each episode, we're talking with ordinary businessmen who have impacted the lives of others as they live out their faith at work. That's the mission of CBMC, helping men know God, discover His purpose in their work, and make a significant impact in the lives of others. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to the Red Letter Business Podcast. My name is Tyler DeBose, here as always with my co-host and partner, Adrian Saavedra. Adrian, who do we have with us uh, today? Today we've got uh, Frank Smith, and Frank is a friend to our ministry. We, we've just recently connected with him, and we had a really good visit a, a few weeks ago, Frank, and I was just really encouraged and blessed by, by that meeting and to see how God is moving in your life. And so we invite you to do a podcast, as we often do, as we get connected with different men who uh, God has used in different ways uh, in their business and professional life. And so we are so thankful that you have joined us here uh, today. And so, Frank, just start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe just tell us a little bit about uh, how God has brought you to this point in your professional life and and connected all those dots and all that good stuff. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, First, thanks for having me on. Uh, Super excited to get the invite. And... uh, Wish I had had tools like this to kind of plug in earlier in my career. I'd be much farther along uh, than I am now, but super excited that these are resources that are out there for all of us now. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. I would say I've always had a really strong passion for business, and I've also always had a really strong passion for car racing. Mm. And I mention that just because it's important to my walk in that I always wrestled with why do I have such a passion for these things? Why does business fascinate me so much? I can geek out on business uh, with the best of them. I mean, I haven't read a fiction book in probably 40 years, but I've read, you know, probably 200 business books uh, over that time period. I haven't read a book in a long time either, just (laughs) (laughs) not for any good reasons, just laziness. We're going to fix that, Tyler. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but I just have this... uh, really interest in business and how it works and and all of that. And so uh, at a point in my career, I was actually trying to buy a business partner out uh, of a business and was getting ready to go to the bank and borrow a lot of money from that business partner. And I was really starting to wonder why, why, why am I putting myself through this stress? Why am I going to go borrow a lot of money from the bank and put myself under that kind of pressure? And I went to the source that we all go to when we need answers, and I did a Google search. And so, you know, it's a little scary to think that I went like, what's the meaning of life uh, in a Google search? And I ran across an organization that's a companion organization to you guys or whatever called Fellowship for Companies for Christ International. Uh, At the time, it was based here out of Oklahoma City. Oddly enough, I'm doing a Google search and find out that it's here in my own backyard. Uh, And Kent Humphreys was the president of that organization. And I got involved with them, and they connected dots for me that I had never had connected in my life before. You know, in my mind, real Christian work was done by being a preacher or a missionary, and I just for the life of me didn't have a strong passion to go and do that and I felt bad about that I've just loved business and what FCCI did for me was it connected the dots that business is my mission field the lives that I go and interact with every day at work whether that's my employees or my customers or my vendors those people need to see Christ through me and when they connected the dots for me on that, it changed everything. It now made work that's much more meaningful to go to work. And so it amped up my 
passion for business and gave me a real purpose behind it versus before kind of feeling a little greedy or something just that it wasn't right. Uh, and now I viewed it as my mission field. Wow. And so it really gave me the freedom to pursue what I've turned into my real passion now, which is business culture. And how do you create a place where employees want to come to work, where they're valued and respected? And so my current role is I'm president of Mosaic Personnel, and we do recruiting for office-type positions, HR, accounting, IT, engineering. And then we also do development work, so training, coaching, and trying to help people create a business culture. Wow. And all of that is kind of wrapped up in mission work. And sure. how do we help people? and how do we better people's lives? My personal purpose statement is elevating life through work. And so that's kind of wraps everything up from my faith and my interest in business all into one kind of summary. And uh, so that's really kind of how I got kicked into this. Well, well, thanks for sharing that. And that's kind of why we started this podcast as well, is that we wanted to connect our listeners with people like you, Frank, that, that found meaning and purpose in their work, but found it through how, how God defines our purpose through our work, right? Not, not necessarily what we can gain from it or, or what, um, you know, what we can take from it, but what he created it for. And um, so that's why we started this Red Letter Business podcast, because actually Jesus and all throughout scripture, they have a lot to say about work and how we should go about it. And and the purpose and meaning behind it and, and how God can use it in the lives in our lives and the lives of others. So for today's podcast, we are continuing in our study in James, the book of James. And, and today we're going to look at what we call forbidden favoritism, right? Uh, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And the subtitle that is dealing with people honestly, right? James talks a lot about uh, not showing favoritism and, and treating people in an honest way. So, so Frank, in all your experience, um, and this could be either good or bad, I don't know what direction th this will go, but describe a situation in your professional career where uh, you've dealt with someone in an honest way that perhaps is not the way that most people would deal with it, right? It would counter-cultural, counter-intuitive. Uh, the world says, do it this way, and you said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't think that's what God would have me do in this situation. So does something come to mind in your experience? Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of different stories come to mind. Uh, two of them really kind of pop to mind. One of them's uh, short and the other one's a little bit more involved. One of them really just boils down to as an entrepreneur, we all run into time periods where it's hard to pay your bills. Cash flow is not what you thought it was going to be. Somebody's slow paying you or whatever, or business just takes a slow run. And I owe a vendor money for inventory or something like that that I have, uh, a lot of people will duck and run from that situation and kind of try to avoid that. I've always made it a personal philosophy of mine that I'm gonna pick up the phone and call my vendor and just explain the situation. You know, hey, I'm getting slow paid by a, a customer. I know I owe you the money. You know, is it okay if I'm a little bit behind? And, and just ask them what works for them. And I've never had anybody that just freaked out on the phone and just got mad and demanded the money. They've all been willing to work with me because if they're a business owner as well, they've been in that same spot. And they would much rather you pick up the phone and call and say, I can't pay right now. What can we do? And uh, versus you just disappearing on them because that's that's so that's just one real quick way that right. pops to mind that says this is easy that people run into all the time. Just be upfront about the situation. Uh, the second story that pops to my mind was when I was selling a manufacturing company that I had owned for about 20 years. 
the company that we were selling to needed to come to our office and do their due diligence. Right. And so they were going to send a team of about nine people into our organization for about two weeks and dive through all of our paperwork and records and all this stuff to make sure that the information we had told them uh, when they got interested in buying us was actually accurate. And so they said, hey, when you tell your employees, just tell them that we're an insurance audit and that we're here to do an audit for your insurance policy. And I just looked at them and said, no, I'm going to have to have this difficult conversation with my employees and let them know that I'm looking at selling the business and here's why I'm looking at selling the business. And these people are here to come and dig through our records for two weeks. And so if they ask you any questions, feel free to answer them freely. But this is honestly what's going on. And what made that even more complex was I knew already that if this company bought my manufacturing business, they were going to move the manufacturing facility to Indiana. Mm. And so all of my employees that didn't want to move to Indiana were going to lose their jobs. So it was a really difficult conversation to have with them. And the employees were so happy that I had that conversation with them, even though it was information that they didn't really want to hear. But at least they knew what was going on. The vendor or the people that were buying my business were shocked and a little bit odd, which I think gave me a great way to say, hey, this is how I deal with people. I'm honest. And it actually helped them feel more secure in buying our business because they were like, hey, if he's going to tell his employees this and not take the easy out, that this is an insurance audit. And what I told them was I've spent 20 years building trust with my employees. And if this goes the way I think it's going to go, because I knew I kept good records and that they would find everything to be in order, they're going to buy my company. And then I'm going to have to go to my employees and say, surprise, it's not an insurance audit. I lied to you. It's actually a due diligence work and I'm selling the business. And I would have lost 20 years worth of credibility on the spot. And right. so, again, wasn't a fun conversation to have with my employees, but it was the right thing to do. And I think it spoke highly not only to them, but also to the people that were doing the audit and uh, the people that were buying the company. So several things just strike me with that story. And, and um, you know, when you were sharing that, I can just picture these people saying, he's going to do what? He's going to go and actually tell them what we're here for? You know, and there's something sad about that because that's what they expected that to be the norm, mm -hmm. right? And that's, to me, that, that says that in their experience, that's how people often handle their business. And there's something sad about that to me because when they're shocked that you actually did it in an honest way, uh, and it was refreshing to them, it sounds like, that, that you built trust with those people as well. But it was so different from what they're used to that just goes to show you some of the workplaces that um, a lot of people work in and where the culture of their company is such that they can't trust to have these difficult conversations with them. And so, Frank, I know you're really passionate about building uh, culture within organizations as well. You work really uh, with a lot of companies to do that. Right. So in your experience, um, what, you know, as much as a difficult conversation as that was, how did you see that benefit you and pay, you know, pay off in the long run with the relationships you were still able to maintain past the selling of the company and, and how that's helped you even since in your professional career? No, that's a multifaceted question there. The first thing that comes to, to my mind, my wife and I always use the term, you know, this is my sleep at night decision. 
you know, I'm going to make this decision because then I can sleep well at night. Uh, the fact that I wasn't lying to my employees and having to keep up with, you know, who I told this and who I told that. And, you know, the worst thing in my mind that could happen was they would find out through some back door, you know, by somebody's slip that was in our accounting department or something because some people had to know what was going on and you put them in an awkward situation. We can just all sleep well at night. Uh, if we're just honest and there's a lot less you know moving parts to keep up but to your point of a lot of businesses don't do this and it's the small stuff too that your employees see on a regular basis it's you know are, are you taking tax deductions that you really shouldn't take are you you know using company assets for personal use those are all ways that we're actually dishonest in different ways and you see business owners do that a lot one of the things that i am a big uh, proponent for implementing in your business is called open book management and I use a specific methodology called the great game of business but it's all about sharing your financial information with the employees and they see everything except individual salaries and a lot of business owners don't want to participate in that because they've got a lot of personal expenses that are you know buried in the books and if they start showing the employees the books then they have to fess up to all of that and it's really disheartening and employees don't like to see that either you know they're working hard and they want to know that everything's kind of above board and it just really has a, a negative connotation to a lot of employees when they see things handled wrong in an accounting way to get a better tax deduction when it's not really you know right and so there's just so many different aspects of that honesty piece that kind of fall into place and in, in how we model our Christian life and we have to believe that my reputation with that employee is so much more important than some $50 tax deduction that I get because I expensed some meal that I shouldn't have expensed or whatever and uh, it's easy to do and it's hard sometimes you do it unknowingly because you see so many other business owners do it that you just think that's the way it has to be done and uh, I think that's where we have to stand out I mean I just think that's a really cool concept of you're sharing all of your financial information with all of the employees and as somebody who will most likely never own my own business but like has been an employee like I can get on board with that like I, I will work really hard if, if you're going to be that upfront with me and that transparent. Like, yeah, I'll run through a brick wall for you. That would, that's incredible. Well, and that's exactly what I've experienced. I mean, I've owned about five, or I've owned five different businesses over the last 20 years, and I've implemented that methodology in every one of those businesses, and I've experienced exactly that. And uh, one of the guys that helped generate or create this system, Jack Stack. You know, he uses the example, he says, for every set of hands, you get a free brain. And so your comment is exactly on point with that because you're much more engaged if I've given you, hey, here's how the business is successful. So I always use the example, when you're flipping channels and you get to ESPN and you see a game on, the first thing you do is look for the scoreboard. Who's playing and who's winning? That's what right. we want to know. Yeah. I can engage you as an employee if I show you how we're winning or how we're losing because you want to win. Right. And if I show you how we as a company win, I just got your brain involved in a different way and you're going to help me win, which is good for you, it's good for me, and we all That's get good. to keep our job. Right. It's good for everybody, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That is great. So in the, in the story you, you previously just referenced with, you're dealing with this um, company that is looking to acquire... Uh, the manufacturing mm -hmm. company you've owned for over 20 years, 
but also you're dealing with these people that some of them have been your employees for 20 years of various times. And so you're, you're dealing with multiple relationships and multiple facets that affect people in different ways. And so James actually kind of speaks to this. He throws out a hypothetical situation uh, almost. And, and so we're going, we're going to, um, if you'll uh, permit me to read a passage of scripture of that we're going to talk about today. Um, in James chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 1, it says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong. In just a few more verses. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And so I think in this story, you know, you had an opportunity to treat these people who are looking to acquire your company in a different way than you would have treated your employees who have been working really, really hard for you. But you chose to put everything out on the table and treat them, treat them alike, right? So um, in your experience, and just and you've worked with lots of different businesses. You've owned five, you said, but you've you've worked with other people from other businesses. In what ways, in this, uh, and I'm doing air quotes here because nobody can see me. In what ways do the rich, air quote, exploit, right? The the powerful. How do they exploit the lesser? Yeah. You know, in today's times, the first thing that comes to my mind because I'm trying to educate myself as much on this topic as I possibly can. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind when you're telling that story is diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Uh, there's yeah. such an opportunity. I mean, we can define rich and poor by dollar values. We can define rich and poor by white privilege versus what people of color right. uh, have experienced, systematic racism and all that. And I know those are, you know, to some people controversial topics, but I think it's a perfect example of how we discriminate more easily in the workplace uh, and in our day-to-day -day activities than maybe rich people versus poor people sure. in the way that the that James describes it in this scenario but I think it's very real I mean when you think of and I'll be honest uh, as I was exploring down this path several years ago even I had a conversation with a friend of mine that's African-American and I was arrogantly kind of dismissing the idea that now we call white privilege and he stopped me and he said, Frank, you and I drive about the same, don't we, when we're on the road? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think so. I mean, 
both you know a little bit over the speed limit kind of thing but nothing egregious and all that he says how many times you've been pulled over and i said wow maybe five maybe six times in my life he said i've been pulled over 24 times Mm. wow he said what's different between you and me right and it was a skin color and that clicked for me it was such a great visual of i benefit because of my skin color in a way that he does not and we see this over and over again in our society uh, even in some of the rules that are made and some of the issues that come up i had a conversation with an african-american friend of mine just the other day about health insurance and some of the issues that he deals with that the insurance won't cover uh, because they're based on more white people's issues than they are african-american issues and it's just like wow you know who who would have stopped to think about that? But so anyway, that that's just really on my mind right. these days because of the last year's uh, push towards educating all of us on what's going on in the world with people of color. Yeah, that can be so frustrating to hear about things like that. And I know uh, in my my previous career, I was a baseball coach, and I worked. Um, I shared an office with uh, two assistant basketball coaches, both African American, who became really really good friends of mine. But we all shared an office and worked closely together for three or four years. And it was right around the time when uh, Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee during the the national anthem. And I was really trying to understand, hey, you know, from my perspective as a white person, actually I'm I'm mixed race as well. I'm half um, Mexican. But I didn't understand why why he was kneeling and why he was trying to get his message across in that way. And they really helped bring understanding to that for me and and one guy in particular his name's Brandon he's he's now the head coach at Southwestern Christian University he said you know he said when I was younger my mom would tell me when I went to 7-Eleven to make sure I got a receipt and make sure they put it in a bag and I just said why my mom never told me that she said because she didn't want me to be accused of, of stealing even if I bought it, she said, make sure they give you a receipt and make sure they put it in a bag. And I thought, wow, you really were raised a little bit different. My mom never felt the need to have to tell me that mm-hmm. as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I just said, wow, you know, we both grew up in the same country, totally different experiences. And he talked about the very first time that he experienced racism. Um, and he's a, he's a military um, military kid so he bounced around but when he came to Oklahoma and Enid uh, his dad was in the Air Force he shows up the very first time to third grade Uh, they moved here in the summer he walks in and his teacher grabs him by the shoulder and says uh, takes him across the hall to the teacher across the hall and says says to her I can tell I'm gonna have trouble with this one and he's thinking I don't even know you I haven't done anything this is the first day of school I just moved here he didn't realize it as a third grader. He never experienced racism before, but that's what it was. And so, you know, unfortunately, we do live in a world, a fallen world, where we're still experiencing that. We see that played out on, on TV more frequently than we want, and it's caused so much division uh, presently. So what can we do um, now, frankly? You know, what are some of the things as we look to running our business or uh, creating a culture in a workplace where every single person is valued and feels valued, and we we get rid of these subtle ways where we dishonor people and 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 devalue them. So, what are what are some of the things that come to your mind that are that have, you know, 
you've been thinking about? Yeah, no, <clears throat> that's a great question. One of the first thing that comes to my mind is the thought as the leader, what I didn't realize until the event that I'll describe in a minute came up is how closely everybody in the company watches you. So I was walking through the production facility of our manufacturing plant and one of the sewing machine operators came up to me and said, hey, you know, what's going on? You know, you must be in some important meetings these days because the last three Fridays you haven't worn jeans. Uh, you've been wearing dress pants on Friday, which she knew meant that I had a meeting with somebody outside of the office or whatever. And she was concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And it really brought my awareness that, wow, she knows that I haven't worn jeans for the last three Fridays in a row. They're watching really closely. Right. So I tell that story because your employees are watching this very closely as well. So you might hire uh, for diversity and have people of color in your organization. And, and let's not just throw out people of color, but also women into your organization. Right. But how do you treat them? Are they actually included in the conversations about the business? Are you getting their viewpoint as well? And th that's really the first thing that comes to my mind is my team is watching how I interact with the ladies on our team. I'm listening. They're watching how I interact with uh, a Hispanic lady that's on our team. And so, you know, these are the things that we have to be doing. You know, we can, men tend to interrupt women in the workplace. I mean, that's a documented fact. Right. You know, I have to be aware of those things. I have to make sure not only that I have them in the office as part of the team, but that I'm integrating their viewpoints into what I'm doing. You know, the difference between diversity, equity, and inclusion is, you know, diversity is just having, you know, people of color or females on your team. But what the real difference is, is once you get to inclusion where they're part of the team and then equality where they have just as much say as anybody else uh, in what's going on in the organization. And that's really what we're striving for. And I promise you, I could go through my team and they would be able to identify times when maybe I haven't listened to a, a woman on a Zoom call the same way I've focused on one of the guys on our Zoom calls. And uh, they'll, they'll call you out on that if you have a good team and you just go and ask them and say, right. hey, where, where can I get better at this? They'll, you know, if you have a good relationship with them, They'll tell you the stuff you don't want to hear necessarily that you may not like about yourself. But I think that's a super important way to engage in this. Uh, the other thing that comes to my mind is look for people when you're hiring in different places than what you normally do. You know, I've been guilty of it myself. I tend to, you know, hey, I'm looking for a new person this way. I go to the same, you know, four or five people that have fed me people before because they're connectors and they connect me with other white people uh, to plug into my organization. And right. so we're making an intentional point now to find those connectors in the African-American community, to find the connectors in the Hispanic community and say, hey, I'm looking for a new recruiter or I'm looking for a new person in this position. You know, do you know of anybody versus just going through the same networks that might be faster for me because they know me and I know them and I don't have to build this new relationship over here. Uh, but we're intentionally trying to go and look in different areas than we've historically gone to look uh, in order to do hiring. Mm. That's that's so good. Uh, and that's an encouragement to anybody out there listening that there are opportunities out there to meet new people and to go to different parts of town and to make connections that can benefit your company. So we wanted to... Um, you know, in honor of James, as he kind of throws out this uh, hypothetical, suppose a man comes into your meeting, right? He says, suppose a man. Well, we wanted to kind of honor the spirit of James and come up with our own 
scenario, right? Okay. This, is, this could be a modern day story that James tells. And so, you know, there, we, we find different ways to show favoritism in the workplace. You, you talked about a couple of them. James talks about between the rich and the poor. Uh, you talked about between diversity and inclusion, even even amongst um, genders, right? Between male and female, and, or through ethnicities. But uh, let's talk about a, a, a scenario between the difference between balancing mercy when somebody doesn't do the, the right thing and policy, right, okay. in the workplace. So let me throw out this situation here. So Joe is a top producer and leader of a main division of your company. He is awesome in every way but one. He has a problem turning in his sheets at all, much less on time. His time sheets, I'm sorry. Every month, uh, the administration staff complains that they cannot do their job, must, much less run payroll, and must constantly bend the rules for Joe. You always deflect their concerns, citing that his role in the company. But one of your new hires, who is just starting out, has the same problem. Policy states that if you do not turn in your timesheet, you do not get paid. And if it could be grounds for dismissal. You have, again, I'm doing the air quotes, the talk right, with, with a new hire. So this, this could be a realistic situation that a lot of companies mm -hmm. face. So, you know, Frank, in, in your opinion, in your experience, you know, and, I, and we specifically designed this, that there's no one right answer to this, right? It's, it, it's just a conversation starter. But how would you have dealt with each of those people? Joe and then the new hire. Yeah, okay, so you get me in trouble here on this one. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, these are the kind of conversations I actually love to have. Right. I love to be able to sit in a room and debate uh, with other people on, you know, to, to learn from. And, you know, hey, here's how I would think about it. So I'll throw out how I think about it. If you guys have some initial thoughts that say, well, that's silly, I'm more than happy for you to throw that back. Oh, sure. Uh, a couple of different things come to my mind. Uh, one, your experienced person has earned some trust with you. He's proven in his job that he does a good job. Uh, yes, he's supposed to be turning in his timesheet. At the same time, is that an ethical dilemma? Is that something that he's doing that's immoral? No. A lot of times top performers in sales or anything like that are horrible at paperwork. So I think we mess up sometimes by creating HR policies that we try to cattle herd everybody through the organization. And I personally am okay with making exceptions uh, for something that's not ethical or moral or anything like that uh, and say, hey, we're going to get somebody that helps put his time card together for him so it gets turned in on time. It still needs to be turned in on time for the benefit of the people that run payroll, but maybe somebody on the team can help him with that or whatever. So that's part A of that piece that I'm not going to fire a top producer that's not doing something ethically wrong just because he can't get paperwork in. You'd fire a lot of good salespeople in the business world if you were focused on that. So there's some workarounds. Okay. Again, the other piece, the new guy that comes in, I would honest, have an honest conversation with him too and just say, you know, you're new here. You haven't built that credibility with the team yet. You know, as you progress, we'll work and make exceptions to you as well uh, on certain issues if you show that you're a top performer, but why, why start those habits now? Uh, so I personally don't see a problem treating them differently. I'm treating them both fairly, I think, but not equally. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I think 
that gets to be a, a fine line of differentiation. But I mean, I've got three kids personally, and I try to treat them all fairly but equally because if I honestly treated them equally, they probably wouldn't be that happy because my daughter wants something different than my oldest son wants, which right. wants something different than my youngest son wants. And so that's where I think, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of them. I have a responsibility to take care of them, but they're not all going to get equal uh, treatment. And I think sometimes we get caught up in the workplace on equal treatment uh, versus fair treatment. And I think I could make a case for that, but I would love to hear somebody's <laughs> yeah. contrary view on that. Yeah, let's see. So, t- Tyler, do you have any thoughts, initial thoughts on that? How, how would you have dealt with Joe and um, the new hire? Well, it's going to be easy for me to say, like, yeah, no, what Frank said was perfect. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, it made a lot of sense. Um, I think, and I'm, I'll lump myself into this, I think employees around my age and younger feel like we should have the same privileges as joe in this scenario when we first start and that's just not the that's just not the case i think what you said is right like we have to earn the trust we have to earn that right to be treated and to to have maybe those exceptions for us and i think that's kind of where my generation myself included kind of falter a little bit in thinking that just because i'm here i deserve what this other person's getting when that's like i'm saying like that's not the case I actually had a similar situation when I was in manufacturing. I had a top sales guy that uh, was horrible at paperwork, even just customer type paperwork. But he could get the order like nobody else in the company could, but he was horrible. So I actually hired an assistant to work with him. And then guess who walked in my office? One of the lower performing sales guys and was just like, hey, so-and-so got an assistant. I should get an assistant too. And I was like, hey, as soon as you put up the numbers he's putting up, I'll be happy to hire you an assistant. But until you put up those kind of numbers, everybody else gets to do their own paperwork. (laughs) That's really interesting, Frank. I I had not considered uh, your perspective before uh, today and hearing that. And I do think there is something because you, you do recognize that the paperwork has to get done. There are people in the company who rely on this paperwork to do their jobs so that people can get paid. So that has to get done. But we kind of put ourselves in a box a little bit to say that it has to be done this way, mm-hmm. right? So I like your approach of, of taking a team approach is recognizing that people in within your company have different strengths. Mm-hmm. And one person's strength may be a top salesman that doesn't mean he's going to be very administrative. And so I don't see anything wrong ethically or morally in trying to come along and assist that person by giving them um, somebody whose job it is their strength is to do that. And if you have a team mentality and everybody's working together for the good of the company and you have established that culture, I think that could work. Yeah. You know, And part of the, the new guy now, the new guy has to kind of buy into that culture and he's got to see that played out throughout, you know, all the rest of the employees, the, the payroll, the CEO, the salesman, the admin. Uh, and if he sees that kind of culture, you know, I think you're more likely to, to have a successful talk with Joe yeah. <laughs> or yeah. with the new guy. Well, and, uh, if you change one thing in that case right. study and you change the behavior not to get in your timesheet turned in on right, but you turn that into doesn't talk to the receptionist very well, maybe bordering on sexual harassment. Now we have an ethical or moral issue. And where I see a lot of businesses go wrong is they'll still overlook that moral issue, 
because of that top performance. Mm -hmm. And that's where now you've got a real problem on your hands. If you're, if you're overlooking something that I can't fix by just having somebody else fill out his time card uh, and get that turned in a different way, that's where I see more companies probably get in trouble is, well, we can't lose our top. And I've had to do that before. I've had to fire my top producer. Mm. And man, that's a, you swallow hard when you do that because I mean, this not only, you know, it's the right thing to do, but it's like, it's one of those faith moments where you're like, God, you told me I gotta, you know, do this. I trust you to take care of it, but wow, this person brings in, you know, 40% of our revenue right. and they're walking out the door today and we could lose that 40%, which impacts, I can't keep everybody else on the team. And uh, so that those get to be where all of a sudden now it's a much more, uh, you know, swallow hard moment and do what you're supposed to do still out of obedience. It sounds like it fits into that category of sleep well decisions that you mentioned earlier yeah. with yeah. your wife. That's exactly I'm going to steal right. that, by the way. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said as well about balancing uh, fairness and mercy um, because I experienced this as a teacher. I, and I, I taught high school students for eight years, and then I went on to work with college students for another 10 years or so. You, you hand out a syllabus on the first day of class. And you say, you're going to have a project due at, on this time, September 1st. And sure enough, that first day, out of your 20 kids, 19 of them will turn it in. And then one person will say, oh, I, I, I didn't have time to do it. I was busy. I had football practice, whatever the excuse is. And you say, okay, this one time, I'm going to let you have an extension. Right? And then the next project that's due in class on, in October you have five kids don't bring it in on time oh mr Saavedra, it was homecoming week we were really really busy doing the float and this and that okay okay i'll give you an extension this one time and then uh you know the last project you got 10 kids it mr Saavedra, i'll just turn it in next week and you start throwing out zeros and they say well that's not fair <laughs> and, and um then i say okay so you want to be treated fairly well, all right. Well, I see that not only did you not turn this one in on time, but you didn't turn your one in October and your one in September. So I'll give you zeros for those as well. Now I've treated you fairly. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they don't want that. Right. And yeah. so we, we have this tendency to cry out. It's not fair when really what you're saying is I'm giving you mercy. Right. I'm giving you mercy in this. You haven't kept uh, the policy, but I'm going to work with you. As long as there's not a moral or ethical dilemma, we're going to find a solution. Ideally, we'd like for you just to turn your paperwork in on time. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give you grace and not you're not going to lose your job. But we are going to work towards having a solution that's going to work for our company, right? And so there is a balance there between mercy and policy, I think. Mm -hmm. So we won't, we won't cover that topic any more exhaustively than we already have. And we can go in all different directions. But before we close out our time today, we ask everybody this. So, Frank... Uh, one of the things we really want our listeners to do is hear this hear this podcast, be inspired to know there's other Christian businessmen out there and find a way to get connected. So uh, how how has discipleship, how is somebody coming alongside you? You mentioned Ken Humphreys. Uh, how is somebody speaking into your life? How has that helped you in your Christian walk? Oh, it's just been transformational for me, honestly, because, again, I, I lived in this world where I felt guilty for putting in 60 hours at the office uh, because now I need to rush off and go do some church work, you know, to kind of balance out my life. 
or whatever. And when the dots got connected for me, I had zero problem working 50, 60 hours. Again, my wife and I had to figure out what balanced with the family needs and how that, when that 60 hours was going to come in. A lot of it was at 4.35 in the morning uh, in order to you know meet all the needs. But it, it really was transformational to realize this is where I'm needed, you know. Bianca that's working out on the production floor has a kid that's got cancer. I can be much more ministerial, if that's even a word, uh, sure. to her than I can running off to be part of some you know meeting at the church or whatever because she trusts me and I have access to uh, connections and doctors or whatever that she may not know how to reach out to. That's a much better use of my time then, hey, I don't have time for you and to get to know you in my business and not know that her kid has cancer because I got to run to my church building and get plugged into some ministry work. Again, a lot of good stuff going on at the church building. Sure. Don't hear me say that, but my priority was there. And so, but that freed me up because yeah. it, it gave me a whole different purpose for why I went to work in the morning. It wasn't just about, hey, I got to cover the bank loan and I want to make some money. Uh, it was, I'm going to covered the bank loan, I'm going to make some money, but I'm also going to make sure that these people are taken care of uh, and they're part of, it's my responsibility. And so it added somewhat more responsibility uh, to my plate, but it was responsibility in an area uh, that I was willing to because God created me to be a businessman. And so that's where I'm at and that's where I'm more comfortable than right. going and being a preacher or missionary, which I felt guilty for before that. And I love that because mm -hmm. most men are probably feel exactly how you feel, right? They, they're not called to, to preach um, or to the mission field necessarily, but we are all called to make disciples. And when you realize that you can do that where you spend most of your time at work, most men spend most of their time in a, any given week at work. And we can do that with every hour, with every breath that God gives us. And so... Uh, Frank, we just want to thank you for, for coming and sharing your heart and sharing your journey and how God is, has kind of connected those dots for you and, and how God's using you, man. We really just appreciate your willingness to come and share and uh, tune in next time for our continued study in, into James as we, as we dive even deeper into what he has to say about how we ought to orient and operate our lives through business. Thank you for listening to the Red Letter Business Podcast presented by CBMC Oklahoma. Each episode explores a story of an ordinary businessman who has had extraordinary impact on the lives of people they work with. Have you ever wondered how God wants to use you in his story? We'd love to be a part of your journey in figuring out how God wants to use you, whether that's through one of our C3 teams, Young Professional Program, our Trusted Advisors Forum, or a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship. Visit cbmcok.com to get connected. Hit subscribe and join us for our next episode. Have a great day.